You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Good morning. If you've got a Bible, turn to Psalm 51. If you're new here, we're so glad that you chose to worship with us this morning. My name's Jamin. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're watching online, thank you for joining us this morning. In Psalm 51, we're going to answer a question. How do I talk to God about my sin? Isn't that exciting? <laughs> How do I talk to God about my sin? Uh, last week, we, we said we're going to start a couple of weeks here in the Psalms. And really, if I could phrase the overall question we're trying to answer in these weeks, it's this. It's how do I talk to God about the things that are hard to talk to God about? And how do I do that in a way that lingers with God in prayer? How do I do that in a way that, uh, that is honest with God about the, the deep things of my heart? And, and so if I think about what the things that come to mind that are hard to talk to God about, it'd be things like doubt or pain or fear or disappointment or even sometimes good things that are hard to talk about, like grace and the things we're grateful for. And, and how do I do that in a way that's not just surface level? Uh, I shared last week that, that this is a, uh, a relatively new part of my relationship with God. Even uh, attempting to talk to God like this is, is new. I've spent the majority of my Christian life and the majority of my ministry life not knowing how to pray, to be honest, at least not knowing how to talk to God like this. I knew maybe like many of us that prayer was important. I knew it probably should be more part of my life than what it was and maybe should look different than, than the way it did. I knew how to pray in public. I knew how to pray for food. I knew how to kind of at, at a certain level talk to God about things that I needed to confess, but, but I just overall did not know how to do it or make time for it. And, and really, if I could put it in a succinct phrase, it's that I, I was a lot better at talking about God than I was talking to God. I wonder if that resonates at all. Just a lot better talking about Jesus than, than talking to Him. and So, can't reintroduce everything that we said last week. If you missed last week, gave more time to kind of the why. So, go back and listen if you missed. But if I could just offer an illustration, if I could offer maybe a, a picture, a metaphor uh, to, to start with this morning, it's like this. Uh, have you ever had like a really foamy drink, like a really frothy drink, like um, maybe like a really hoppy beer or something? This isn't a trap. It's not a trap. <laughs> I'll do a tame example. Um, growing up, my dad's favorite drink growing up was bottled IBC root beer. Anybody? And he would, uh, he would do what, what all normal people do, and he would freeze the mug first so that it kind of frosted on the outside, and then he would pour the, the root beer into the mug. And what happened is, is, is after he's done pouring, the first layer of it's just the froth, right? The first layer is just the, the foam. And then underneath that is like the dark root beer, right? And, and, and so to, to drink it, what you have to do to enjoy the drink is you have to get through the foam, right? You're not, you're not drinking the drink for the foam. You're drinking the drink for the actual drink, the substance, right? And so uh, you have to, a couple things you can do. You can maybe pour out the foam or, or just drink through the foam. But the point is, is you're trying to get past that first layer to get to the real substance of the drink because no one gets the drink just for the foam. Conversation with God can be like that. Talking to God can, can be like that that, that, that we are the drink, and there are a lot of things on the surface that are maybe easy to talk to God about. 
in the foam of our life, the top layer of our life. There are things that are maybe more natural to talk to God about, the events of the day, or maybe, uh, you know, just, just praying for things that are really far removed from us. And those prayers, to be clear, they matter, and there's nothing wrong with that, but we were not made to only stay in the top layer of conversation with God. We, we, were, we were not made to just stay in that thin part of the thin places, the surface-level areas of our life. God invites us deeper than that. Underneath that top layer, He invites us uh, deeper into substance, into the substance of our heart, into the things that exist there in the depth of our life, like our doubt and like our fear and, and like joy. And, and, and we want to, to talk to Him about those things, the substance of our heart and the substance of His heart for us. Uh, his love for us, his, his grace, His discipline, His mercy. God doesn't want us to just stay at the surface of our lives in conversation with Him. He wants us to go deeper than that. And there's a lot of reasons not to. Uh, it's really easy not to do that. talked last week about how just distracted we are as a culture. I think in our religious culture, the reality is much of our religious culture doesn't celebrate this kind of thing. Much of our religious culture does not celebrate slow, deep spirituality. We celebrate the celebrities and we celebrate the big stages and the huge followings. Our heroes are often only the public Christians, not the praying ones. So it's easy to neglect. And we lose something when we neglect it. Would you heed a word that I don't know that I actually can convince you is true if you don't believe it, but I want to say something that is something I would have scoffed at a couple years ago in my pride that I believe to be true now. You and I will go no further in our relationship with Jesus than where our prayers are taking us. Growth, maturity, deep change, it will not move faster than the pace of your prayer. It will not go deeper than the depth of your prayer. It won't. You ever feel like you've been really busy for God and you feel really far from God at the same time? You ever feel like you've been really busy for God and really far from God at the same time? Um, closeness with God does not move at the pace of action for God. It moves at the pace of conversation with God. Jesus does this. He knows this. Jesus would ret retreat from ministry to, to be with God, to talk to his Father, and he would linger for hours. So hear me. Anyone who claims Christ and hopes to be like him needs the kind of conversation with God that gets through the foam of your life, needs the kind of conversation that tarries with God in the deep parts of your life. Well, what if I don't know how to do that? What if I've never done that before? What if that's really uncomfortable for me? What if I sit down and I close my eyes and I just think of all of these really random things and that makes me feel weird and so then it, it just never really goes the way that I expect it to go. It's just not that spiritual. It's not that romantic. What if I don't know how to do this? Well, I have good news. God offers help. God offers help. He has provided. He preserves prayers for us to help us do just that in the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms is 150 prayers that guide us, help us, teach us how to talk to God, especially teaches us how to talk to God about the things that are hard to talk to God about. Uh, and I, in my life, am learning to make these prayers my own. As someone who honestly feels a little bit behind in all this, as someone who feels like I should be further along than I am, I'm trying to grow with Jesus at the pace of prayer, and Psalms are my guide for that. And what I'm hopeful for just in these weeks, I'm hopeful that we can do some of that together as a church. What that meant last week is that meant how do I talk to God about my doubt? How do I get underneath that surface uh, layer of my life into the depths of things like the, my deep questions about God, right? Think about that. 
In Psalm 73, God has provided a prayer. He preserves in his word a prayer for us because he knew we would doubt. He knew that the people of God have, have been crippled by questions because life is messy and at times it's just so hard to believe about God what he says about God and at times it's so hard to believe about us what God says about us and that's a normal part of Christian life. Here, here's what we said. Doubters, you're not outsiders. Weak faith in a strong God is more than enough. And so instead of holding that in and pretending like it's not there and then avoiding conversation with God or only staying in the foam in conversation with God, no, 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 don't do that. Talk to God about it. He offered a prayer that helps us do that. That was last week, this week in Psalm 51. How do I talk to God about my sin? Underneath the foam of my life, underneath that thin layer, the, the sin that might be there, the sin patterns that might be there. How do I talk to God about the wrong that I've done? How do I talk to God about the sin in my life? Real quick, we did doubt last week. We're doing sin this week for a reason. Because I think those two things are the two things that if we don't know how to talk to God about them, we won't talk to him at all. Think about this. When, when you go to pray, think about how often you go to pray and you either get stuck on your doubt or you get stuck on your sin and you just quit your conversation. So we need to know how to do this so that it might open up maybe that, that, that avenue of relationship with God that we've been closed off to for a while. How do I talk to God about my sin? Psalm 51, verses one through six. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. He's talking to God about his sin. From the very first sin that's recorded in history, there are two responses that are the most natural when we sin. In the garden, you see Adam and Eve do two things when they sin. They distance themselves from their sin, and then they distance themselves from God. So they distance themselves from their sin. They, they try to cover themselves up with leaves. And then when God comes around, uh, you know, they, they blame shift. And so he blames her. She blames Satan. They're distancing themselves from their sin. And they distance themselves from God. What you see in the first six verses of Psalm 51 is David fights against both of those movements. Uh, David fights uh, against both of those things that are most natural to do in our sin. And so let me show you the first one. Instead of distancing himself from his sin, he owns it. He owns it. That's step one, the first part of the conversation. How do I talk to God about my sin? The first thing you do is you own your sin. Listen to the language David uses. My iniquity, my sin, my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned. I was brought forth in iniquity. Sin has been a part of my life for all of my life, God. It's ownership language. It's God's language. Everyone has decided what they believe to be wrong with humanity. I think we all generally know that there is something wrong with humanity. Anyone who didn't believe that, they now believe that because of 2020, right? We're all pretty convinced that there's something pretty wrong with humanity. Uh, the other day I was talking to my daughter. She's seven, almost eight. She turns eight this Saturday, which is crazy. She said, hey, Dad, uh, are there many boys out there named Jamin? And I said, no, it's, pretty, it's a pretty unique name. It's really easy to mispronounce. People do it all, all the time, even at church. 
Anyway, um, that was passive aggressive. I'm so sorry. <laughs> she said, I said, why do you ask? And she said, well, Dad, um, I want to marry someone like you someday. And so I want to marry someone named Jamin. Isn't that so sweet? Just wait. <laughs> I said, Adeline, you know what I want you to do? I don't care about you marrying someone like me. I just want you to marry someone like Jesus. That's all I care about. I want you to marry someone like Jesus. And she looked confused. And she said, well, that's not what mom did. <laughs> and she wasn't even trying to be funny. She just, with a straight face, she stated a fact that we both knew to be true. It's not what mom did. She's not wrong. It hurt, <laughs> but, but it's true. You know, I'd like to think that I'm becoming more and more like him, but um, there are as many, if not more, ways that I'm not like him than, than I am like him, right? She knows that. I know that. Jesus was perfect. I'm not perfect. Nobody's perfect. That, that's something that we're, we're really comfortable saying, right? Nobody's perfect. It's something that's kind of made it into our, our, our common cultural language dialogue. It almost sounds virtuous, right? It almost sounds humble. But it matters, church, how we account for that. It matters what we call that imperfection. God has language that He's given us. God calls the wrong in us sin. The Bible teaches there are two things that are true about every single human. Humans are two sides of, of the same human coin. On one side, what's true about every single human is we all have dignity. On the other side, every single human is depraved. We are this combination of dignity and depravity. The very first pages of the Bible, the first word about humans that were made in God's image. That means every person has dignity as an image bearer of God. There is sanctity and sacredness to all of our lives, however young, however old, whatever color, whatever background. Every person, before you accomplish anything or fail at any or offer anything, you have intrinsic, divinely assigned value simply because you are human. Nothing and no one can take that away from you. The other side is that we're all depraved. Dignity and depravity. Depravity means we're sinful. Genesis 3, sin enters the world through our first parents, Adam and Eve, and we're all born following in their ways. We're all born into a broken home. We're all born with dysfunctional parents. If there is a shred of honesty in you, we all know that there is goodness we're made for that we're not capable of. We all know that there is kindness and generosity and selflessness that should mark our lives but doesn't. Pride and anger and lust and selfishness that should be absent from our lives but is very present. And all that comes out of our lives as sinful thoughts and sinful speech and sinful acts. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But it's really easy right now, especially in the moment that we live in. It's really easy to shy away from that language. It's really easy to dress up what's wrong with us in ways that feel more attractive and more acceptable. We have been given language to distance ourselves from our own sin, to not own our sin. Or right now, what's so common is to have our eyes glued on everyone else's problems because we have access to so many other people's problems, and it's really easy to know a lot about other people's problems, even if we're not part of the solution to those problems. And the biggest problem with that is that we don't see ourselves most clearly when we look at other people. We see ourselves most clearly when we look at God. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, you will never make yourself feel that you are a sinner because there is a mechanism in you as a result of sin that will always be defending you against every accusation. <laughs> we are all on very good terms with ourselves, and we can always put up a good case for ourselves. There's only one way to know that we are sinners, and that is to have some dim 
glimmering conception of God. I love that language. A dim, glimmering conception of God. We're all on very good terms with ourselves. We're all really good at minimizing, dismissing what's wrong in our lives, unless we have some sort of dim, glimmering conception of God, unless we see God and we see us through God's eyes. Like, look, friend, one of the clearest windows into what you believe about God is by paying attention to what you believe is wrong with you. What do you call it? Do you distance from it? Do you use God's language for it? Do, do, you, do you know the story behind this psalm? Psalm 51? It's, it's a terrible story. It's one of the few psalms that we know the, the full story that led up to it. We hear about it in 2 Samuel. David, who's the king, um, it, he's probably most well-known. If you're, if, you're, if you're not familiar in church or with the Bible, David's probably most well-known as the guy who killed Goliath, the giant, with a stone and a slingshot, which is awesome. Well, years later, he gets in trouble. Apparently, he didn't slay all the giants in his life. He's Israel's king years later, and he sees a woman named Bathsheba bathing on the roof of her and her husband's house. She's happily married. We later learn in the story that when her husband dies, she weeps over her husband. She's not trying to get out of her marriage, but David takes advantage of his power and takes advantage of his position to take advantage of her. Literally, it says he sent men to take her, and those men brought her to his bed. The woman that he was entrusted to lead, he treated like a thing to be had instead of a person to love and serve. She gets pregnant. David freaks out. So David has her husband, a guy named Uriah, who was one of his warriors. He has, he has Uriah brought back from the battlefield. Uriah was off fighting David's war for David in David's place. So he has Uriah come home, and he invites him home so that he would go to his house, and he would sleep in his bed, and therefore sleep with his wife, and, and then everyone would think the baby is Uriah's and not David's. Uriah is so honorable that when he gets home, he refuses to sleep in his home while his men are fighting in battle and sleeping on the battlefield, which means he doesn't sleep with his wife. And so David goes to plan B, and David gets Uriah really drunk, thinking that he will have less character if he has more wine, and he's wrong. An intoxicated Uriah was still more righteous than a sober David. So David sends a letter with Uriah back to the battlefield. That letter puts Uriah on the front lines. David has him slaughtered to cover his own sin. And then after he's dead, David takes Bathsheba and makes her his wife. See something? This is not the point, but it's a good time to point out. The Bible is so honest about how messy humanity is. So honest. Every now and then my son will come and ask me a question about something really inappropriate or something that I wasn't planning on talking about till he was older, and it always catches me completely off guard, and I'm like, where did you hear that? Like, what movie did your mom let you watch or something like that, right? <laughs> and he'll say, oh, I, uh, I read about it in my Bible. And I'm like, he must be reading the book of Judges or something, right? Like... <laughs> But he move on to the Gospel of Mark. Go right past Song of Solomon. We'll get there. Just <laughs> not yet. But the Bible presents, and every time that happens, I'm just reminded of the raw honesty of the Bible. It presents this honest picture of how messy. There is no attempt on behalf of God to cover up or conceal or dress up or avoid the brokenness and sinfulness of his people. There is only one hero. It's Jesus. 
There's only one hero. And if we're honest, we can relate a lot less to being a hero. We can relate a lot more to needing one. And if the Bible is that honest about the sinfulness of God's people, then maybe what's needed now is a lot less surprise to discover that we're as sinful as we are, a lot less expectation for us to have it all together, and a lot more confidence in Jesus to give grace. So all that happens. And you know what David does. How does he respond? After all that ruin, all that destruction, all that manipulation, all that violence, all that pride, all of that consuming people, how does God's king, the one after God's own heart, how does he react? He's fine. It's astounding. He's fine. He moves on. Uh, He is on very good terms with himself. And what changes is he gets a glimmering conception of God. Nathan the prophet comes to him and tells him about something that's happening in his kingdom. He says there's this rich man who has a ton of lambs who lived next to a poor man who only had one lamb. But that poor man's one lamb was more than a lamb. It was like a family pet. It slept in his house and it played with his kids and it ate from their table. It was like a, a golden doodle in the suburbs, right? That's how this, what this lamb was to, to, to this poor man. And the rich man with a ton of lambs went to the poor man with one lamb and took his family pet and killed it to feed it to his friends. What should we do to the rich man? And David's livid, livid. He says, put him to death. He doesn't deserve to live. And Nathan says, you are the rich man. You're the man. You did that, but it's so much worse, King David. You did that not with sheep, but with people. And David, from the vantage point of some parable, has a right reaction to his sin because he has a right view of his sin because he got a glimmering conception of God and it shattered his hard heart and he says this, I have sinned against the Lord. That's his reaction. I have sinned against God. All of that wrong. Think about that. All of that wrong wrapped up into one word. I have sinned against God. That's what's true about me. He owns it and then he writes this prayer. After that interaction, he writes Psalm 51. He doesn't say, He does not say, yeah, Nathan, the prophet, great story. But, you know, all of those years from running from Saul really messed me up, so it's not my fault. He doesn't say, you know, I never really processed everything that happened with Goliath. I don't know. He was really rude to me, Nathan, and so it's not my fault. No, he says, God, I sinned against you because I'm sinful. He owns it. What would that sound like? What would that sound like? for you to talk to God about your sin and not to distance yourself from it, but own it. Okay, so maybe you've never done anything like what David does, but the details actually aren't anywhere in the prayer, so that shouldn't trip you up. This prayer is not for only one kind of sin. It's the model prayer preserved for us to talk to God about our sin and starts by owning it before God. What would that sound like to maybe do the work, get a glimmering conception of God's holiness compared to your life, and then be honest about the bitterness in your heart towards people in your life, to be honest about the passivity in your heart, to be honest about the idolatry of comfort in your heart, the idolatry of control that marks your life, to be honest about the hidden sexual sin in your life. When you see the sin in your life, own it. That's number one. When you talk to God, do this. Number two, don't distance from God. Tell God what's true about him. Own your sin. And then two, tell God what is true about him. Listen to David. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Even after everything he had done. That horrible story. 
How could he, of all people, possibly talk to God? How could he close his eyes and bow his head with his sins surrounding him and engulfing him and pray to a holy God? You know how? Because he knows what's true about God. And he tells God what's true about God. He says what's true about God is you are, you, you God, you are filled with, with the Hebrew word is hesed. It means God's covenant faithfulness. I love the way the Jesus Storybook Bible translates this word. It calls it God's never-ending, never-stopping, never-giving-up, always-and-forever love. This is who I am talking to about my sin, a God of abundant, steadfast love. And he says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your never-ending, never-stopping, never-giving-up, always-and-forever love. Then, as if that wasn't enough, according to your abundant mercy... Two things he says about God. You have this hesed kind of love and you have this abundant mercy. He's asking for mercy. That's where it starts. And then he says, mercy is the very thing God has. Well, how much does God have? An abundant amount. Like if you've ever needed money, if you've ever been in a place where you're really in a pinch financially and you have to ask someone for money, the person that probably came to mind for you was a person who not only had a lot of money, but also someone who you thought was willing to give it to you if you asked, right? Like, it's easier to ask for help, to ask for money from someone who has that combination of surplus and willingness, right? That's the person that comes to mind. They have it, and they want to share it. That is God with his mercy. Because of his steadfast love and abundant mercy, he is able and willing to meet us in our sin with grace. Here's what it means when we talk to, to, to tie it all together. When we talk to God about him, about him, about our sin, let me state it a way that Maybe you'd even write it down. Maybe you'd even pray this to God later. If this could make it into your prayers, say it like this. God, you are against my sin, but you are for me. God, you are against my sin. God, you are for me. That's what it all amounts to. Because he is filled with love and mercy towards you. God, you are against my sin, but you are for me. Can you say that to God? Maybe, maybe you'd even pray. Maybe we could even pray right now. If you just close your eyes. The sermon's not ending. Don't get excited. If you could just close your eyes. God, you are against my sin. You are for me. I think this is the hardest thing for us to believe. Uh, I think so many of us are walking around with this soul-eating shame-inducing, guilt-crushing belief that says, because of my sin, God is against me. And maybe that's why we don't talk to him. Listen to this from Dane Ortland in his book, Gentle and Lowly. I'll have it up on the screen behind me. Perhaps Satan's greatest victory in your life today is not the sin in which you regularly indulge, but the dark thoughts of God's heart that cause you to go there in the first place and keep you cool toward him in the wake of it. What if the greater hold on your life, friend, are, are not the sins that you're committing, but what Ortland calls the dark thoughts of God's heart that take you there in the first place and then keep you from moving towards him, keep you distancing yourself from him. The dark thoughts that say he is against me, he hates me, he only sees the worst of me, and so the help that we need in our sin we never get because we believe falsely that God would rather withhold from us than give to us, and that's not who he is. He is against your sin, but he is for you. He loves you. He loves you. Thomas Goodwin, he's a Puritan, was a Puritan. He lived in the 1600s. He wrote a book called The Heart of Christ. He compares, he compares Jesus' heart towards our sin to the love a parent has when their child is sick. 
the love a parent has when their child has a disease. Like parents, if your child's sick, especially if they're really sick, if they have an illness, in that moment when they're sick, there is something in them that you hate, right? You hate the disease. You hate the illness. You hate the sickness. You hate the thing that hurts them. Well, what motivates that hate? Your love for them. You are against what hurts them because you're for them. You stay up at night, right? You wait on them. You get the cold rag. You move closer to your kids when they're sick. In fact, they get more time from you when they're sick than when they're healthy, right? They get more of your presence when they're in need like that because there is something you fight against that's in them because you're for them, and that fight requires more of your presence. Listen to what Goodwin says. The greater the misery, the more is the pity when the party is beloved. He, he writes like a Puritan very much. Now, all miseries, sin is the greatest. And while you look at it as such, Christ will look upon it as such also. And he, loving your persons and hating only the sin, his hatred shall all fall. And that only upon the sin to free you of it by its ruin and destructions. Don't miss this. But his affections shall be the more drawn out to you. Therefore, fear not. Like the parent who is drawn even more to the sick child. This is how Jesus is, how God is to us in our sin. His affection even more drawn out towards us because the need is greater. The love grows to match the need. What if, what if the very things you think make God run from you are the very things that draw out his love towards you? What if he is the kind of God that doesn't run from you but chases you down? What if he's the kind of God that doesn't withhold but he freely gives? What if he is against your sin but he is irrevocably, unconditionally for you? And what if that's most visible when you're most broken? Goodness. That's who he is. According to your covenant kindness, God, your never-ending, never-stopping, always and forever love, and I need mercy and mercy. God is the very thing that you not only have a lot of but it delights you to give. What would that sound like? Let me tell you what it would sound like if you would pray and just say, God, you're merciful. You are full of loving kindness towards me. God, you are against my sin, but you are for me. Tell them what's true about him. 7 through 12. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. He owns his sin before God. He tells God what is true about God that he most needs to remember when he's sinned. And then see what he doesn't do. He doesn't start bargaining with God. He doesn't say, I sinned, so now I'm going to go to church twice as I'm going to go to both services on Sunday. He doesn't say, I'm going to start a nonprofit for sinners. Right? He doesn't say, I've sinned, so here are all my resolutions that will atone for my sin. Can I tell you something that's really dangerous and really easy to do? When we are broken over sin, when we're overwhelmed by our sin, it is so natural to want to take control and turn to ourselves to make it right. But it was taking control and turning to ourselves that got us there to begin with. We cannot clean up a mess with the same resources that got us there. Let me say it another way. We often move from unrighteousness to self-righteousness. That's what's natural for the human heart, the depraved heart, to move from unrighteousness to self-righteousness. We sinned, we messed up, and then we're going to clean it up, which is self-righteousness. Uh, we're going to clean us up. 
which means we believe that we have to deal with our own sin. We have to atone for what we've done. And trying to live a pure enough life to deal with our own guilt and our own shame is destined to repeat and return to the sin we're trying to atone for. Destined. I am convinced. I am convinced that so much of the sins in our present are the things we escape to when we're exhausted from trying to atone for sin in our past. I am convinced that so much of the sins in our present are the things we escape to when we're exhausted from trying to atone for sin in our past. And it's just a cycle we're on because maybe we get to this point of the prayer. God, I've sinned. God, you're full of steadfast love. Then God, I will do better. I'm going to do better. I promise. Just, just watch. And I'm going to clean it all up. That's not the next step. Taking responsibility for sin does not mean taking control. Our righteousness does not need self-righteousness. It needs God's righteousness. It needs Christ's righteousness. What we need in our sin is the unflinching, incomparable, justifying, sanctifying, resurrecting power of the cross of Jesus Christ and nothing more and nothing less. In fact, in verse 10, he says this, create in me a clean heart. If you circle in your Bible, circle the word create. There are a few words in Hebrew to describe creating or making. There's a couple different verbs you can use, but there is one word that is only used when it's God who creates. Only one word used. It's reserved in the Hebrew Bible to describe divine creation. It is only used when God creates because there is a kind of creating that only God can do. And that's what David asks for. Create in me a clean heart. This is what God wants you to ask for when you sin. He wants you to ask him to do the work that only he can do, right? Not here's all that I will do. No, God, I need your work. I need the work that you've already done. I need the work of the cross applied to my life now. I'm releasing control. You take over. I need your grace. That's where he wants you to go. Let me give you just one example that we see here. There is a lot that he asks of God in this prayer. I commend all of it to you. Maybe consider even memorizing verses 7 through 12. His asks of God are just beautiful. I want to show you just one thing, just one thing to make part of your prayer. He doesn't bargain with God. He asks God to do the work. And part of that is he asks God to cleanse his shame. He asks God to cover his shame. Own it. Tell God what's true about him and then ask God to cover your shame. For all of us, there is a space in our life between who we are and who we know we should be. It's true for everyone. The only people who don't know that are the people who don't have self-awareness. There's a space in all of our lives between who we are and who we should be. You know, when that space is really clear in our lives, you know when that space is really daunting in our lives is when we sin. And when we're aware of our sin. And that's where shame can come in. So maybe one way to understand shame in our lives is when in between who we are and who we should be, there stands an accuser. In that space in our lives between who we are and who we know we should be, there's an accusing voice in that space. There's a voice of shame in that space. It's filled with condemning words in that space, constantly reminding you of that space. You're not the Christian you should be. You're not the mom you should be. You're not the dad you should be. You're not the friend you should be. You're not the child you should be. Guilt says something about what we've done. Shame speaks to who we are. It erodes identity in our life is what shame does. And it's really loud. I don't, I don't know of a time when shame is more loud than when you and I give the accuser evidence for the accusation, when we help the argument with our sin. Can you imagine 
what that would have sounded like for King David. There is who he should be, and then there is who he is, and the accuser speaks, shame speaks. What kind of king are you? What kind of king who abuses his people? God made a mistake choosing you, David. You are no better than Saul, David. The Spirit will leave you because God can't be near you, David. Everyone knows what you've done, David. No one will follow you. No one will respect you. No one will read your prayers. You will never be who you were meant to be. Do you hear that voice? In between who you are and who you should be, do you hear the accusation, your fraud, your fake? Especially when you try to pursue God. Maybe you're trying to pursue God, even being at church now, and sin from your past is brought to mind all of a sudden. Maybe sin you've been forgiven for, maybe sin that you've already confessed, brought to mind and weaponized against you in your thoughts. You're not who you should be. You will always be defined by the wrong you've done. You will never be more than what you were at your worst moment. And what we do, it puts us on our heels. And so then you argue and try and defend and try and prove. And that's what makes shame so crippling is it keeps us stuck. If it can get you to believe, keep you stuck under accusation, then you will live your entire life. You will constantly be in this state of trying to prove the accuser wrong. And that is no way to live. Do not try to argue with your shame. Ask God to cover it. Ask God to cleanse it. That's what David does. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Do you know what kind of language that is? Purge me with hyssop. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. It's priest language. He's asking God to be his priest. Hyssop is what priests would use to clean things that have been defiled. They would wash them so they could be restored and would be useful in worship. The priest mediated between God and people so that they could be presentable and acceptable to God. And David asked, God, would you be my priest? The very God of the universe, would you be a priest to me, God? David asked God to get the tools used for cleansing and asked God to be the one that cleanses him. God, you make me clean and acceptable before you. And because he believes that God can cleanse him, watch this, because he believes that God can cover and fill the space between who he is and who he should be, he begins asking for all the things that shame would say he doesn't deserve. God, cast me not away from your presence. Take not your presence from me. Restore the joy of my salvation, God. Give me gladness. Give me a new spirit. He asked for all the things that the kind of person who commits the sins he committed does not deserve. He asked for all the things that his sin had forfeited because he is not defined by what he has done. He is defined by what God, his priest, has done for him. And so he can live out of an identity that his sin forfeited, but God's shame-cleansing love restored. Christian. In between, who you are and who you should be does not stand an accuser. In between who you are and who you should be sits a priest, Jesus. Hebrews 7 says he has a forever priesthood and he forever lives to make intercession for you. And when you sin, he does not stop speaking. He sits enthroned at the right hand of God and what pours from his mouth forever and ever are words of life and truth and grace and gospel over you so you don't have to be stuck trying to defend yourself against your shame. Your priest has already won the argument for you, stronger than your shame and louder than your accuser. So the only words you have left to speak are, wash me, Jesus. Purge me, clean me, make me whiter than snow, nothing but your blood, and then you get the joy and freedom of knowing that you are not your worst moment. You're not. You are not your worst moment. God's shame-cleansing love declares you to be what you could never become without him. What would that sound like in conversation with God? 
What would it sound like to ask him to cleanse you and cover your shame, to ask him to shut the mouth of your accuser and fill your head and your heart with the words Jesus speaks over you? The last thing David does, just want to read verse 13. He says, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. The last thing he does is he tells God what his mercy and grace will do through him. He tells God what God's mercy and grace will accomplish in David's life, and he dreams with God about how God can even use his failure to make much of God, to bring glory to God. God does not delight in using perfect people to do his work. God delights in using changing people to do his work. People who are not who they were, but, but, but not yet who they will be. And I think we often think that God only uses people with a righteous resume. What if the resume God is after is not the list of things that you've done, but your resume is filled with the list of things that you've repented from and God has forgiven you for, and that's what qualifies you? Because then you are in a perfect position to be a trophy of God's grace, and all that's left for you to do is declare, this is who I was, and yet God, rich in mercy, abounding in steadfast love, met me, changed me, and then used me to open my mouth and declare his goodness and grace in my life, even and especially when I did not deserve it. My friend, God wants to talk to you. He wants you to talk to him about the deep things of your life. He wants you to get underneath a thin layer of your life. He wants you to talk to him about your sin. Let's practice that together. Would you pray with me? I don't want to be presumptuous that everyone's in a place to do this right now, and so you respond in a way that makes sense for you. But if you are if maybe God has brought to mind a sin, would you just turn this psalm and make this psalm your prayer? Would you own that sin before God? Would you tell God who he is? He is the God of covenant kindness, never ending, never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love. What you need is mercy, and mercy is exactly what he has in abundance and is eager to offer. Say again to God, God, I believe that you are against my sin, but you're for me. Would you ask God to cover your shame? that the space between who you are and who you should be would not be filled with accusation, but it would be occupied by King Jesus, our great high priest, pleads his blood on your behalf. And maybe you could begin even dreaming with God about what his grace will accomplish in and through you. If you just remain in a posture of prayer, friends, we'll carry this into communion.